All right, so I bet most of you in this room probably remember that scene from The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and Toto and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion and wait, there's one I'm missing, the Tin Man. Okay, they're all together and they come before the Wizard of Oz. They come back and they have defeated the Wicked Witch of the West and they bring before the wizard the witch's broomstick. And Dorothy says to the wizard, she's like, look, we did what you asked. We brought you the broomstick. Now you need to keep your promise and help me get home. And the wizard like puffs himself up. He gets all big and he's like, how dare you speak to the great and powerful Oz like that? And as he's sort of huffing and puffing and projecting all this greatness, little Toto runs over and he finds a curtain and he pulls it back by his teeth. And as the curtain is pulled back, what we see is that the great and powerful Oz is actually just this regular con man who's operating machinery. The curtain's pulled back, the truth is revealed, reality is exposed for what it actually is. In the world of the Bible, we would call Dorothy's experience here an apocalyptic moment. Now, when we use the word apocalyptic, in our world today. A lot of the time, we mean something like a catastrophic, world-ending, destructive event, like you'll hear it on the news. It was a tornado of apocalyptic proportion. But in the Bible, apocalypse means an unveiling, a revealing, a pulling back of the curtain on ultimate reality. It comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means a revelation or a disclosure. And our passage this morning, Daniel 7, is an apocalyptic revelation. It is God pulling back the curtain on reality to both expose how bad things really are, how broken the world really is, and how in control he still is and how faithful he is going to be to set things right. And the point of that revelation for us this morning is this. Apocalyptic vision of God's promised future helps us live in a troubled present with hope. Apocalyptic vision of God's promised future helps us live in a troubled present with hope. So Daniel 7 takes us back to the reign of King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon in the 6th century BC. And in the story of Daniel, we already know at this point that Belshazzar has been killed and that the Persian Empire is the one that has taken over Babylon. But this passage kind of functions like a flashback in the story. It's flashing us back to the time when God's people still didn't know how the story was going to end yet. And that's exactly who apocalyptic visions are for. They're for people who don't know how the story is going to end yet, which is all of us. And so the story goes like this. It's weird, so buckle up. Um, Daniel is woken up in the middle of the night with some intense apocalyptic dreams, and it is like a Marvel movie. There are like monsters and heroes and battles. We've called it strange stories in a strange land for a reason. It's so weird that even Daniel wakes up at the end of his dream and is like, oh, that was pretty weird. Um, He doesn't say it like that, obviously. You can go and read the rest of Daniel 7 and figure it out. but, But he has these visions. And it's helpful to think of these visions like a set of bifocal glasses. 
You know, when you wear bifocals, you can see clearly what's right in front of you, and you can see clearly out ahead to what's out further ahead of you without having to move your glasses on and off. And you have two clear fields of vision at the same time that you can go back and forth between. That's how Daniel is experiencing his visions here. It's like a set of bifocal glasses going back and forth between the up-close struggle of evil in the world and the farther-off reality of God's rule and reign at the same time. So first, the bifocals up-close. This is what Daniel sees. Uh, You can see it here in this picture. He sees four beasts that have come out of a chaotic sea. And we've got a lion with eagle's wings. We've got a bear that's chowing down on some ribs. We've got a four-headed flying leopard. It's in the Bible, y'all. And then we have finally a ten-horned beast with no name that is the fiercest of them all. And these beasts are ferocious. They are devouring and dominating monsters. And we're told in Daniel 7 that these beasts represent kingdoms of the earth that make war with God's people and even prevail over them. Daniel 7 describes the ten-horned beast like this. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. For centuries, scholars have made pretty good educated guesses at which kingdom each beast represents. Some have said it's Greece or it's Egypt or Rome or even the United States of America But I think it is intentionally left vague for us here because the truth is we all experience the power of the beast in our world. We all experience in some way or another the kingdom of the beast of sin and death in our lives. There are a lot of people in our world today that experience that actually as the power of corrupt governments and institutions. I think about the families from Afghanistan and Guatemala that our good neighbor teams with Arrive Ministries are walking alongside right now. Those families have experienced the kingdom of the beast at work. They have suffered under the ways that sin and death make human hearts and governments and communities turn beastly toward one another through violence and oppression. For others of us, I think that we are trampled by the kingdom of the beast in much more subtle but still soul-destroying ways. I remember when my husband and I had our first home together in North Carolina in that first year, and I struggled so much with comparison and envy related to our home. I remember feeling like our house wasn't as cute as our friends' houses, and like I didn't have the time or the money to make it this like HGTV, you know, makeover deal. And it seems so trivial, it does, but I spent so many hours feeling so anxious and sad after spending time with my friends at their houses. And I missed so many opportunities to extend hospitality 
and generosity and welcome people into my home and my life because I was besieged by the power of comparison and love of possessions. The Bible word for this is coveting, by the way. And the sin of coveting was a beast that trampled me down. It told me the lie that my worth was bound up in my possessions. This is what Paul talks about in Romans when he says we are slaves to sin. Daniel 7 confirms it. The kingdom of the beast is too much for us. We are trampled under its reign. We need something from beyond this realm to break through and rescue us. This is the up-close vision of Daniel's dream. The curtain is pulled back and the power of sin and death is exposed for what it really is. But Daniel's bifocal vision has another reality. Farther out, beyond the beast, he sees that another king reigns. Picking up in verse 9, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So pausing there, this Ancient of Days character is understood to be the God of Daniel and his people, and his throne room is a courtroom. And unlike the beasts that strive and scavenge for power, the Ancient of Days just very calmly and simply takes his seat before the multitudes. And in verse 13, Daniel sees that the Ancient of Days isn't ruling and judging alone. He says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So a couple things to pay attention to here. First, this vision is something like a coronation. The Ancient of Days gives complete and global dominion to the Son of Man, and his is the true kingdom that will prevail. And second, this phrase here, Son of Man, literally means a human being. So the Ancient of Days is giving a kingdom and glory and dominion, not to another beast, but to a person, a human being. You'll remember that over and over again in Daniel, we've seen how the kingdoms of human beings become corrupt and beastly, literally putting people in dens of lions. And this is not just the theme of Daniel, it's the theme of human history. Since the Garden of Eden, since the original deception of the first beast, the serpent, humanity has been corrupted by the kingdom of sin, and we become like beasts towards ourselves and one another. But what Daniel sees here is one that rules differently. He's the truly human one, and therefore he is endowed by God with all rule and authority. 
And it is from the throne of the Son of Man and the court of the Ancient of Days that the beast is finally destroyed. Picking up in verse 26, But the court shall sit in judgment, and the beast's dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In the centuries after the Babylonian exile, God's people kept going through crisis after crisis. Persecution, invasion, oppression. And over time, this vision from Daniel of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, it became a focal point of hope. Hope that what God had revealed behind the curtain would actually come to pass. Hope that one day, one with God-given authority to judge the kingdoms of the world would come and finally destroy the beast and restore the earth and reign forever. And what's interesting is that when Jesus comes on the scene, the number one thing that he calls himself, the number one title he uses for himself is the Son of Man. And the people around Jesus when he does this. They're like, heck yeah, you're the son of man. We're going to rule with you and you're going to help us put all these other people in their place. And every time Jesus goes, hold up, you're missing it. I'm not going to be the son of man that way. I'm not going to use the power of the beast. Instead, I'm going to defeat the beast by letting it do its worst to me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 26, there is this beautiful, holy irony of Jesus, the King and the final judge of all creation, standing judged in a human courtroom by a person on a human throne, and he is sentenced to a beastly death by crucifixion. And it is right then and there, in that moment, that Jesus quotes Daniel 7 to his accusers. And he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Because his courtroom is at Calvary and his throne is in the shape of a cross. In the cross of Jesus Christ, the bifocal vision of Daniel merges into one scene. And this is the ultimate apocalypse, the ultimate exposure of the beastly power of sin, and the ultimate unveiling of how far God is willing to go to rescue us from its grip. The judge from Daniel 7 is judged in our place and then raised victorious so that the power of the beast can be broken in our lives. It's at the cross that the final dominion of the ancient of days is on full display, and it's revealed as nothing other than self-giving love. The Scottish pastor Tom Smale puts it this way, when we take our bearings from the cross, we can see that the only power with which Jesus works 
is the power of that utterly self-giving love which saw itself as weak and helpless on Calvary. He overcame all the violent force and energy of evil that fell upon him there, not by exercising greater force and violence, but by renouncing them altogether. The power of Jesus is the power of Calvary love. It is by that love, nothing more and nothing less, that God delivers, remakes, heals, frees, and saves. This is the great apocalyptic vision that gives us hope. The Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge says that our experience of God's rule and reign after the coming of Jesus is similar to how Europe experienced the time between D-Day and VE Victory Europe Day during World War II. After the Allies had invaded Normandy, everybody knew that Hitler's rule was over, the end was certain, but it still took a year for the Allies to work bit by bit to reclaim Europe. Rutledge says the end had come, yet it was still in the future. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is our D-Day. And even though the beast still rallies against us and wears us out, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has once and for all invaded the territory of the beast to rescue us. The advance is on its way. Victory is certain. And so we can live in this troubled present with a hope that God's promised future is secure. The difference, though, is that the saints of God make war against the beast, not by taking up arms, not by violence and battling flesh and blood. We don't battle the beast with the tools of the beast. Instead, we battle the beast by walking in the way of the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. We make war against the beast through Calvary, love. One of the truest signs to the world around us of hope, the hope that we have, is when we actually show that we are willing to love in the Jesus way of costly, sacrificial risk. Because this kind of love is only possible when you believe that God's promised victory is sure. When I think about people who witness to this kind of hope, I think of one of my personal heroines, a woman named Marguerite Berenkitze, or Mama Maggie, as a lot of people know her. Mama Maggie is from Burundi in Central Africa, and in the 1990s, when violence broke out between uh, Hutus and Tutsis in Burundi, Maggie herself was personally threatened. She witnessed firsthand death and murder and the power of the beast to trample and kill and destroy. But rather than flee or fight, Mama Maggie started welcoming orphans, regardless of their ethnicity, into her home. And she said that rather than hate, she decided that love, I love this line, she decided love would make her an inventor. 
And she started a home for orphaned and vulnerable children called, called Maison Shalom. And Maison Shalom, even today, it is a house of peace for children from all ethnic backgrounds to come and grow and learn and become part of a family that witnesses to the reign of the Son of Man, the power of Calvary love. And of course, Mama Maggie says, there are days when it's hard, when she feels that power of the beast still, when she longs for the final victory of God to be felt on earth. A reporter one time asked her, like, what difference does your faith make to this work? And she said this, it's my faith that gives me strength. Whenever I face difficulties, I go to church and pray to God to remove the obstacles that are in my path. It is my faith that gives me the peace and confidence to hope in the darkest moments for a spirit of love that will allow us to forgive and to be reconciled. This is what apocalyptic hope in God's victory over the beasts looks like. This kind of hope and God's dominion that brings together every tribe, tongue, and nation, hope that knows Calvary love is the most powerful thing in the world. As the band comes up, I want to leave you with this question. Where do you need this vision of hope to touch you today? Some of you are here this morning and you are sleepwalking through life and you need this vision from Daniel to wake you up the way that it woke up Daniel. Are you building your life around the kingdom of the beast? Are you building it around the kingdom of the son of man? Are you awake to the power of his love for you? And some of you here today, you are feeling battle weary. You get those days that Mama Maggie faces feeling tired and discouraged. The beast is wearing you out. You have someone in your family that's really hard to love. Or there's that addiction that you're dealing with that just seems to not get any easier. Or there are those obstacles that are not getting any simpler in your life. Whether you are sleepwalking or battle-weary, this vision of Daniel 7 is a promise for you the kingdom of the beast doesn't get the last word on our lives. The last word's already been declared and revealed by the Son of Man. He has broken through enemy lines. There is no battle we face that he is not with us in it and by our side. So now that the curtain has been pulled back, may we be renewed to live like his promises are true. Will you pray with me? Holy God, ancient of days, we so often live like we are sleepwalking. We are so often feeling battle weary. Wake up our tired hearts with this vision of your rule and reign. Restore our souls with the promises that the victory belongs to you and it is sure. We worship you, our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of Man, truly human one who has already inaugurated your kingdom even while we wait for its fullness. Make us a people who live in the power of your self-giving love. Amen.